Hello, Bible study. We are coming down to the end of our Mark study, and we're so glad that you are with us, whether you're joining us on Facebook, YouTube, or on iTunes. If you're doing your dishes right now, listening, bless your heart. So glad that you are here, and we're excited to talk about chapter 14. Dave, how you doing? I'm doing pretty good. You know what my dad called this after he did it? What? He called it my chat show. Ooh, it's your chat show. Very insulted. <laughs> I kind of like that. This is not a chat show. Bible chit chat. Would like Peter. to correct that heretical statement from my father. They're not going to call it a chat show once they hear your hot take on transubstantiation later. Oh, no. You guys can wait for that one. Help me. Help me. Jesus, help me. I've been on Zoom meetings all day, and I'm coming in a bit wild uh, this evening. I had a week off to rest up because Big Phil Dunn was uh, doing his thing. Yeah, yeah. uh, Enlightening me about time, space, in the nature of eternity, which I enjoyed. Yes, and I didn't get to compliment you on your sermon from the week before, but oh, thank it was you. very well done. Oh, I appreciate that. Did enjoy it. Yeah. And also, people were telling me they liked it, which I always have to take with a little bit of a, okay, well, he can't preach for at least a few months now. I like Just it so they, they remember who's top dog. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got to Just preach kidding. It. I got to preach it in a tent, which was exciting. That is exciting. Uh, I was enjoying that fact. And I felt like you actually were like, you got to listen to the tent one because the tent one was stronger. The tent one was better. <laughs> Don't tell the online people. Well, the tent one is now online. Okay, if you, uh, want, if you really want to well, see. I brought a big Bible. <laughs> that helps. <laughs> I, had a, I have a big King James version yeah. that's large print. Right. So it makes it about three times as thick. Uh, and it makes it three times as hard to read, too, because a chapter lasts like five pages. Uh, but you can thump it real loud. So I told them I brought my Bible thumping Bible for my tent. Sermon. Is that the one you brought when you first started coming to St. Andrews? Probably. If it was oh, a, my if gosh. If it was a big black Bible, it was Yes. Bad. You brought it, and it was huge. And I saw you with your boots and your big old Bible. I was like, oh, this, this guy's trouble. It's a fashion statement Bible. <laughs> yeah. But it's hard to read. It not, it, to the tent it not sure. only has gigantic letters, uh, which are somehow offensive to the eye, but also anytime it hits like a name like uh, Gerasenes or Sanhedrin, it like spaces it out with little dots for like pronunciation, which makes it for some reason even harder to read. Uh, it's a challenging book. It's kind of militant uh, in its... Uh, composition but that's what i like about it you should uh, bring it sometime i should and, and i read i read the uh benediction out of it uh, so i got to use it a little bit otherwise i read the niv because it's just a lot easier to yeah, do because it's a seventh grade reading level yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh okay. all right so peter's gonna start us off a little bit well i peter preached a good sermon too Thanks, Last uh, Sunday. I, I told him he had to communicate about my sermons with the appropriate amount of reverence. Yes. So he's done that now. What a good sermon. <laughs> I was there for it. I was sitting behind he you. Was, you were present. In a mask yeah. and sunglasses. You're looking uh, 
like a like and a uh, I really enjoyed uh, this discussion of uh, the woman at Bethany and this idea of worship and adoration uh, and dialing into kind of uh, you know the presence of, of Jesus that was before her. Would you like to maybe lead us a little bit through your inspirations for the sermon or kind of main points you were getting across? For I people guess that need uh, a refresher? yeah. What is the relevant questions for this woman anointed at Jesus, who anoints Jesus at Bethany? Um, I think one of them is basically to talk about who was Simon the leper is an interesting thing because there they are hanging oh, out right. Simon mm-hmm. the leper's house. Who is this guy? Why is Jesus at his house? It's interesting that Jesus like just like had basically friends that he would just hang with. He was always just at somebody's house hanging out, um, probably blessing them. Obviously, being in a leper's house is intentionally mentioned in the text here to again sort of talk about how Jesus deals with the quote unquote unclean nature of people that are struggling with this disease. He's befriending them. Those are basically his people. So I think, you know, even these little notes are, little details are kind of good to pay attention to. And then I think Witherington was talking about how this is a good place to hide out if you're about to, you know, have some things go down with a religious establishment that is coming for you because they would have seen that house is unclean and then in the middle of this big, or in the middle of a, maybe a small meal, actually, intimate meal, potentially, but disciples are there, who knows. Um, a woman comes in. Interestingly, there is a f- couple of depictions of this story that have some different details. Like, I think you read about how Jesus anoint. I mean, how the, a woman anoints Jesus' feet, because that's in another gospel depiction of this. But actually, in ah. this depiction, he is anointed on the head. And so there's some speculation about if this is the same story oh, or okay, not. Yeah. Um, and the way that it went down. But ultimately, for the same purpose, which Jesus says, you're preparing me for my burial with this anointing. And you're from a uh, more Holy Spirit-led congregation uh, originally, Dave. So, yes, you ever been anointed? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I know that there are people that would do more demonstrative, experiential types of things. Yeah, uh, I don't know if I've ever been anointed. Yeah. That's a good question. I don't think so. You know, my, my dad might tell me later, what are you talking about? Uh, but, but it was definitely present in your... I kind of feel as David... It's a biblical command, right? That I might have gotten shortchanged a little bit if I didn't get anointed by mm. somebody. Uh, one of these days, maybe it's just waiting. I'm waiting for it. I'm going to keep that in my back pocket for the right moment. (laughs) Sneak up and anoint me. (laughs) That's basically what happened here. Like, why is Peter walking around with a bottle of olive oil (laughs) in his back pocket? I got some in my office, so you better watch out. But 
Yes, it was a sneak. Uh, it was a sneak attack a sneak anointing. Sneak attack anointing. Yes. And actually, that's an interesting idea because I have had this happen to me once. I mean, obviously not like how it happened to Jesus, but I also got sneak attack anointed once, and it was really cool. It was like when I was like 20, and I had done. I was getting ready to leave from the summer ministry that I was doing in Alaska, and I had done it with some people that were more charismatic. Um, so it was like my last day, and so there was a charismatic church that had come, and then the guy that we were helping, a guy named Elgin, who had this kids' club, and basically we just did kids' ministry with the kids' club there, and the kids were, you know, they needed Jesus, let's put it that way, and they also were very poor, and so he would feed them and, and help them out, and then on the last day, basically this charismatic, two ladies from this church and Elgin sat me down, and they poured oil on my head, and I was like, time out, guys, I'm Presbyterian. <laughs> but it was very meaningful to me. Yeah. And I still think about that when I read these kind of texts. But also, it's kind of a weird thing because you're like, oh, now I got oil over me. And I'm just going to go kind of keep carrying on with my day here. You don't necessarily want to wash it off. Right. And then lose the anointing. Yeah. Right. So, and Jesus doesn't wash. No. Because you made that point, too. That yeah. was one of the big, big points. Yes. I can just repeat my sermon if necessary here, but... <laughs> <laughs> you go where you'd like to go. Yeah. Um, what else is an interesting question? Well, I mean, we didn't focus on this Judas part, but why do you think Judas, this is kind of the last straw for him? We talked about it a little bit. Um, you know, out of this, this is where G Judas sees what this woman did. It's pure nard very expensive perfume. Judas, after this scandal, is ready to sell Jesus out and betray him. Yeah, it's weird that this is the uh, kind of the, the breaking point for him, at least of, of action. Um, I don't know. I, I, you definitely have this interpretation of the Messiah here as the as the sacrifice, as you know, being prepared for burial, that would completely uh, go in the face of any kind of interpretation of him as this political leader that's going to lead them out into. Uh, it'd be different if she came and put war paint on his face mm -hmm. and said, "We're going to go have an uprising." Instead, it's the opposite, and that seems to maybe. Maybe that's deflating to him. I know, I think you guys talked a little bit last week about Judas and the idea of uh, him looking for, you know, that kind of uh, political uh, Messiah that's going to lead Israel out of Roman occupation. Uh, and then also, Judas, I think you might have talked about it in your sermon, but Judas was the person who kept the money. Uh, and uh, here she is with this critique of her wasting what was worth a lot of money. And Jesus is, it's almost kind of a callback to Cain and Abel about, you know, what Judas values most, Jesus doesn't see the value in. Uh, and that drives, you know, he's identified himself maybe as the keeper of the money. And Jesus has said once again, we don't need money, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know, those are just guesses. Oh, those are good. And I think, yeah, so much of life, you know, I think is comes down to like, I see Jesus do this a lot where 
you're like, are, are you in the moment? Are you present to this moment? Or are you just kind of acting out of whatever system has worked and you think your, your expectations would um, just basically demand how you would act? Or are you looking at this woman, this moment, and being present to what's actually happening? And I also think part of it, too, is the disciples are always kind of jumping in before Jesus. I know they kind of act as a foil, too, for, like, what the emotions in the room might have been. But, you know, they're always jumping ahead of Jesus. They're never waiting for Jesus to react. They're always condemning people, and then Jesus comes in and says, actually, this shouldn't be condemned, you know? And this is one of the most beautiful ideas, kind of like what you're saying about war paint versus anointing. Like, this is preparing Jesus for sacrifice, for his sacrifice. And this is an act of worship to prepare him for that. So, obviously, this is um, expressed by Jesus. You know, it's like, how can you miss how beautiful what is taking place is? In fact, not only... Have you, not only is this something I'm acknowledging now, but this will be acknowledged for all of human history, essentially, that this act is, of worship is basically that important and beautiful. And so it is totally a new way of um, understanding Messiah and what the saving one would do and what he would be about. Um, so I just, it's, it's you know, one of the more beautiful pictures in all of scripture, I think, when you really think about what it's trying to get at. Any other thoughts there? Well, I found in John yeah. the other depiction oh, yeah. <laughs> that is that is at Bethany, but now it's she's named as Mary, uh, and I know that there's been some people that have, or some theologians of the past have tried to say that's Mary Magdalene. I think most people don't think it is now. Uh, but there's Mary and, and Martha here uh, at Lazarus's house, uh, where she takes the pint of pure nard and here does put it wipe uh, wipe uh, his feet with her hair on it. Uh, but then on this one, it says that it, the person I just didn't know this, so for edification for me and for everyone else, uh, it was Judas. There was the one who said, why wasn't this perfume sold and money given to the poor? So I didn't realize that because in Mark it doesn't name the person. And then it says, he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Uh, so that's an interesting thing, too. Yeah. The sin in his heart. And uh, in, in, in like, uh, you know, John was written after Mark. Yeah. So then you wonder what parts of Mark John had that he's trying to fill in some mm -hmm. of these details with, right? Um, yeah, and I just, uh, thoughts on this, um, you know, I've always, I was always taken with this idea, that, you, know, you know, the poor you will always have with you, but you'll not always have me. And this, this idea of having Jesus with them, incarnate and walking with them, and what that means to us who have Jesus with us in a different way, you know, in a way that's, you know, to be honest, much harder to see and, and feel and understand. Uh, however, you know, Mary here, I mean, she's Mary in the book of John, but the woman here, you know, is 
just dwelling in that presence. You are here now. I worship you. I adore you. And that's what he uh, praises her for. You know, she's, I'm not always going to be here. She's the one that's willing to live in that presence. And so I guess a big question for us is what makes us, what allows us to get into this position of being aware of God's continued presence, even now when we maybe can't see him as uh, clearly as you would have if he was, you know, walking around in front of you. So I don't know if it's a challenge to us, to me, whatever, to live in that awareness of the presence, because that seems to draw your heart out into that kind of pure type of worship and living uh, that she's uh, demonstrating here. One of the one of the most genius things about Mark as a writer is that he is revealing through characters who only know in part something very truthful. So like you could wonder like, does this woman really know she's preparing Jesus for his burial? Um, it doesn't matter because she is. And that I think is a, a, like we're going to see that really strong when we go to the cross, when it says like on Jesus cross, you know, king of the Jews. That's true statement, but it's written all in capitals on the cross, ironically. Jesus is going to put a crown of thorns on because he actually is king. So there's this big motif of God will accomplish his purposes no matter how much human beings even understand of how he's achieving those purposes in the world. And that kind of gets into that, like, God's working all things together for the good of those who love him. Like, he can use all these imperfections and half-truths and half-insights and failures of the disciples all for his glory. And we see that even with Judas. It's like Judas' hard heart actually gets Jesus to where he needs to go. And so he's driving the story. Um, and this woman just in juxtaposition is modeling for Christians what is the right posture in, you know, our relationship to Jesus versus kind of everyday ministry mode, something like that. Yeah, and the big difference between all those people like Judas and the Romans and then this woman is that she's she's part of that movement with Jesus, right? She's she's aligned herself with his will where those people are almost being used to accomplish what God wants to do in history here, but we want to be part of that. You yeah, know, and there's nothing we can do to stop it, yeah, but we want to be with it on the right side. because we want to be in that place of intimacy with him. Uh, and one other thing I wanted to say was a little shout out. I remember, I don't know which text he was using, uh, but I remember when we did our youth uh, sermon series, the Holy Rebels one, Ryan Woolner, uh, who is one of the youth leaders, did his did a, a holy rebels uh, message on this woman, talking about how she rebelled against almost the proprieties of the time, the the embarrassment of going into that room, the the value of that uh, of that perfume, all of that she could rebel and turn against if it meant turning towards 
Jesus. Mm. So I thought that was a really cool way of interpreting that idea of rebelling against the world because the world was placing value in things that weren't Jesus. Yeah, that's a cool theme. And I think that's a d- dead on, like, it almost, like, and I, that was one of my themes in the sermon was trying to get at was the idea of how do we worship in the midst of, you know, like a world that is trying to get us out of a worship posture. And in fact, in those moments where things are great struggle, like in this moment for Jesus, those are the most profound moments of the question, like, am I still going to worship? And if I do, and I lean into worshiping Jesus in the moment of crisis, like, what does that generate in me, in my spiritual life, in my deepening, in my strengthening of uh, who I am as a Christian disciple? And um, and juxtapose that with whatever the oncoming uh, attack from the world is going to be. So I think that's exactly right, yeah. And this woman is a great example of it. And then Judas, on the other hand, in the make or break moment, he he's goes south pretty hard. <laughs> All right, the Last Supper. All right, yeah, so let's move on. So if you didn't listen to the sermon on uh, Jesus anointed. Make sure you do it. It was a great sermon. Yeah, seriously. No, I think if you just sat through that, you got, you're yeah, good. Yeah, this is all uh, an imperfect uh, attempt to recreate uh, that brilliant message. <laughs> now he's laying it on. <laughs> the Last Supper. Uh, well, my dad actually sent in his reflections on this. Uh, and when, when uh, his writing... He breaks down a lot of what's happening. Uh, and I think my favorite part, though, is some of his reflection on the meaning of uh, the Lord's Supper, of communion, uh, of what it means to us. And I want to read uh, towards the end uh, his kind of final commentary on it. He wrote, That night in the upper room, our Lord Jesus established a timeless place for all believers to come to express gratefulness for what he has done and experience intimacy in his presence. Whether we call it the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion, or the Eucharist, it is meant to be a place of fellowship with Jesus, who always longs to meet us there. And then he also goes on to share a personal story uh, from a book he's writing. Uh, And he he writes this uh, about about my mom and him. Uh, And he, he writes this, Janet and I, loved to visit a small Episcopal church that was the first church in San Clemente. Initially, we went there because of the classic Spanish architecture, but when we went up and knelt before the altar for the Eucharist, something wonderful happened. The elements were offered with these words, the body of Christ, the bread of heaven, followed by the blood of Christ, the cup of salvation. Responding with our receptive amen, we ate and drank and as we did, the spirit of Jesus filled us with his wonderful presence. So I, I really like this idea of not only it being a reminder of Jesus' sacrifice, uh, but also just a continual uh, invitation to be with him just like it was that night, uh, to dwell with him and to uh, you know, dwell in, in his presence. So I like that uh, idea and that take on it. Thoughts? Oh, you know, 
but there's been a lot of takes on uh, the Eucharist. And <laughs> oh, one word that I like it. to say, just because I like to say the word, is transubstantiation, uh, which this is getting this is getting old school theological with uh, you know uh, some uh, big ideas. But transubstantiation, uh, for those that you don't, the view that don't know, has to do with the idea of the the bread and the uh, wine actually becoming the literal flesh and blood of Jesus at some point uh, in the communion service, usually a belief that's held by Catholic Christians, prob probably Eastern Orthodox, uh, but the Protestants have uh, uh, at some point in history uh, changed to be more of a symbolic understanding. What's your take, Peter, on transubstantiation? <laughs> well, I don't, we can't, I could not be a Presbyterian pastor if I held the view of transubstantiation. Um, and that's, I think, one of the big definers of the Reformation was, I, one of the ways that I understand it, and of course, if you're a good practicing Catholic, we can uh, agree to disagree here, which I know you do with me. So, But basically, in the early church, as time went on, that we're dealing with a pretty pre-literate culture. Um, and so, like in the Catholic church, you see a lot of stained glass and imagery um, and also... The, the Protestant church emphasizes biblical literacy. Like, you don't see a lot of this going on in Catholic churches even to this day. Um, and so there was a lot going on when it came to taking communion, um, especially as the church went on. But part of it was that it was seen as the holiest moment. The, the church, all of the church um, was built around the, that moment, even... Um, Lutheran and Episcopalian churches still build their um, services around taking communion at the end, like your dad mentioned with the Episcopalian church. But that starts as a Catholic idea. Their church is built around communion. And their belief around communion, I think, in my opinion, came out of a tradition that over time was um, misinterpreted <laughs> The Bible to say this is literal body and literal literal blood, but when Luther really started reading and studying the Bible, he saw that this was actually, if you interpret it correctly, a symbolic gesture and not a literal gesture. But even early accusations against Christianity were to talk about them as cannibals, because that was a misunderstanding of what they were doing when they were taking communion. So it all comes down to how we interpret, one, like the scripture you just read, what does it mean? This is my body, you know, this is my blood. Uh, we can see in that meal itself that those weren't the literal blood and literal body of Jesus. He took bread and broke it. This is my body broken for you. That's not literally Jesus's presence within it. That I, I think that's and we're interpreting here, but in my interpretation, that means symbolically when they do this meal, it's representative and not literal. 
So they, the Catholic Church is carried on a different tradition. Bless you all. We can talk about it more. I'm not the great theologian on this, but we did go through an N.T. Wright series on it once, which was good. Uh, it was my threat uh, at the beginning before we went live to make Peter talk about transubstantiation. Uh, and I told him mostly because I like to say the word transubstantiation. Uh, but it's a very interesting idea, and thank you for yeah. some of the understanding little, of where... It's a little funky, too. Like, sometimes, you know, like... Well, anyways, what they do with the elements after and things like that, because it's the body and yeah. the blood, it all has to be drank, it all has to be eaten. So there's a lot of wine being drunk at the end of the day. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, well... Uh, Shall we continue? Absolutely. I think the next section uh, we'll let you uh, talk about a little bit first, which is uh, Jesus predicting Peter's denial. Yeah. So one of the things that jumped out at me about this part uh, was the quote, um, because it got me thinking, and I had never really thought about this before, but um, in this section, obviously this is about Peter denying Jesus is making a, a prophetic utterance. He's, he's prophetically telling Peter what, <laughs> that he, it's just so crazy how blunt Jesus is with Peter, basically just like straight up, you are going to mess this up. Um, and I, I had forgotten this language, but I thought it was interesting. It says, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. So that's like from, that's from Zechariah, and it's also got the shepherd imagery in it. So what I thought was interesting about that is when Jesus reinstates Peter um, for disowning him, he does it three times, and he asks a question, do you love me? And then when Peter says yes, he says then, feed my sheep. So we see all of these correlations. They're there's very specific imagery that Peter has as a disciple and as basically like a symbol for the disciples, right? I mean, the fisherman is such a strong symbol and identity. And then this shepherding image is such a profound image and identity for Peter as the first pastor. And so in my office, there's a picture of... Um, it's done by an artist named Scott Erickson. And it's a picture of Peter with Jesus. And in the image, there's a yoke, and there's two holes for the yoke. One is the yoke of the world, and the other is the yoke of the kingdom of God. So it has the keys of the kingdom. Um, and then in the image, it's in exchange between um, the key, I think it's uh, fish. So he's giving the net to Jesus and he's receiving, I th maybe that's the key image. He's receiving the kingdom of God from Jesus. And so there's these like vivid images that are happening for Peter in his um, continuous trying to understand what his role will be in the ongoing, you know, continuance of Jesus' public ministry. This is Jesus' number one guy, and he's going to be brought as low as possible. 
only to be outdone by Jesus on the cross as far as how low he's going to be brought. But his is all emotional and it's all betrayal. <laughs> um, but I just found that uh, the shepherding image to be, you know, this is very prophetic and very connected to the office that Jesus is positioning himself as pastor. When he is struck, then all the sheep will, will scatter. So I thought it was a cool little prophetic idea there. Yep, yep. Yeah, let's move on because I have yeah. I have ideas about it, but uh, they're they're just as valid about when later in the chapter, okay, Peter actually does deny Jesus. Yeah. Uh, so this section was mine, Gethsemane. Uh, you know, this has always been one of it's hard to say my favorite parts of the Bible, but definitely one of the, mo the most meaningful to me throughout my life. Uh, and a big part of it is just seeing Jesus in sorrow and in this kind of mental uh, anguish uh, was always this picture to me of God knowing what suffering is like. Uh, knowing and not a stoic type of unemotional suffering. Uh, even when he goes to the cross and is and is tried, uh, and of course that is an extreme type of suffering. We see a lot of silence that he uh, goes through, at least it, through the beginning. Uh, but here we have him, you know. In the other Gospels, it talks about him sweating blood and, like, just in anguish. He, said, he, he quotes uh, one of the Psalms saying, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. I'm, I'm almost going to die. I'm so sad. So I, I always saw this, strangely enough, as a, as a major source of comfort, knowing that Jesus knew what it meant for us to be sorrowful, how that felt, uh, and that, and, and we can see just like all the other ways he walked as a human uh, on the, in the world, even with his, un, you know, perfect understanding so much of his relationship with God uh, that he could feel this kind of agony. Uh, and I read uh, some commentaries that were, you know, really commenting why, why this level of agony for Jesus. You know, Jesus is kind of always known that he's destined for the cross. Uh, and it could be that he's, you know, you know, he goes as far as, and I'll talk about this in a second, uh, even requesting to God to take it away from him. You know, if we don't have to do this, can we not do it to take this cup from me? Uh, and Wright uh, points it out, and I've always thought too, one of the, you know, most agonizing things for Jesus must have been that moment where he says, you know, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Another quote from a psalm. But this idea of him taking on the sins of the world and being, at least for that moment, possibly separated from the presence of, the, of God, which was properly and in the way we all try to imitate his lifeblood. It was his connection. He was always connected to the Father. Everything he did was through the Father. So to know that that separation is coming uh, is an agony to him. 
and that might be one of the reasons why we see him just so distraught here. Uh, and with, if you could think of anything that could tempt Jesus, his love for the Father, you know, there, there's something, you know, I've been reading, I've been telling you, I've been reading Kierkegaard's Fear and Trembling, which is all about Abraham having to sacrifice Isaac, and the, the faith that Kierkegaard talks about that Abraham would have to not only go through with it, but to still have faith in God in God's goodness that he wouldn't actually make him do this. Like, I'm going to do it, but I know you won't make me do it, which almost doesn't make sense. And we almost have Jesus here. Uh, I have faith that even if I'm separated from you, I won't be separated from you. Uh, but uh, anyway, if there's anything that could be more tempting for him to not do, it would be this idea of being separated from God, the love of the son for the father, uh, just like Abraham's son, love for Isaac. Uh, and then we have this, these three moments of prayer, which I see in some of the uh, uh, commentaries compared to the three temptations uh, that he had in the desert. So here he's going through it again, even in maybe a more uh, tempting or, or painful way than he did in the, in the wilderness. Uh, Jesus being tempted, yet coming through it uh, with faith of what's going to happen. Uh, and what it ends up kind of delivering is this kind of message about the close connection between suffering and faith. Uh, often I know in my own life, my strongest moments of faith follow some of my hardest moments of suffering because it forces me to depend on God's providence and him taking care of me. And uh, if you indulge me for a second, I actually brought this commentary, uh, which I thought was really pretty interesting. This is by Alan Cole. Uh, and he writes, uh, so he's talking about the quotation from Psalm 42, uh, which is this uh, my, I, I'm uh, overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And he says, this psalm is, uh, the quotation from Psalm 42, verses 5 or 11, are doubly suitable. This psalm is not only expressive of the soul's deep longing for God, but also contains in the last clause of each of these two verses an affirmation of faith and a promise of God's deliverance. Thus, at the very moment when he seems most perplexed, he is most conscious of God's ultimate vindication. Uh, now, when I looked at these psalms, and this is Psalm 42, you know I'm getting into it when I'm having to, yeah. I'm getting into teacher mode when I have all these papers around me. Uh, but when we look at Psalm 42, because I, I was, I, the, I couldn't understand what the guy was saying at first, because I couldn't see where this hope was and what Jesus was saying, but it's what Jesus doesn't say, because in Psalm 42, uh, it says, uh, let's see. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Which is like this, uh, my soul is uh, uh, sorrowful unto death. 
And so you have Jesus alluding to this part, but then he doesn't allude to the next part, which is put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. And then in verse 11, again, it says, why are you so downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? And then it says, put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. And so this idea that Jesus is quoting, and he actually even talks about the quote on the cross of uh, why hast thou forsaken me, he says that what Jesus would have known is that what follows each of those things, each of those verses I read in the Psalms, but then also uh, the end of uh, this, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, is that each of them leads to an ultimate salvation and restoration. So uh, I thought this was interesting that it's almost as if Jesus knows that I'm going to suffer, but God's going to, and I'll quote these passages where I'm suffering, but I know where they go in the end is salvation. And because of that, uh, at least uh, Cole, the guy that pointed that out, talks about how what we see here is not just Jesus suffering, but Jesus ultimately knowing uh, that these cries are not just cries of agony. How does he say? He says there, uh, this makes the cry one of faith, not of despair. So even in agony, there's a difference between agony and faith and then agony and despair. And what we see here is going through this suffering yet staying faithful in it. Mm. So that was all I had to say. I had a lot to say about that one because I was assigned to it. Uh, That's great. And I've been in work mode. Uh, ideas, uh, thoughts on Gethsemane? Oh, I, would, I guess I'd just add, yeah, that um, uh, one of my most vivid images in Gethsemane is the idea of the oil press to go to your point like because I think that captures both ideas it's like there's the crushing aspect which we're seeing here but that crushing is for formational purposes and deepening purposes and new uh, wine purposes for in the wine metaphor um, so I think that yeah and then also like how Jesus intersects with authority here is really beautiful where there's that wrestling, but then there's also the uh, surrendering of will in the image of the Gethsemane, which I also find beautiful. But with that psalm that you just read, that was actually, I, I once was um, in an argument about that text, <laughs> defending the point that you just dismantled about kind of the separation from God and stuff. Uh -huh. um, and uh, I was with a guy who had been to seminary for one year, and then he showed me that that psalm. I've never had like a more vivid like <laughs> learning moment where I was just like, "Dang, I just got crushed." <laughs> you were defending that. Uh... I was basically saying that, you know, this is a moment of great separation. Oh, okay. And he was saying, "Well, if you read it." that there's actually a redemptive element if you understand the psalmist. Okay, yeah. Yeah. So I didn't get I didn't understand any of that yet because I was just reading on the surface. I wouldn't if if it wasn't for this guy pointing it out. <laughs> yeah, and I also think there's people that make choices about it. Yeah. Like some people make the choice to go with what I think is accurate that Jesus is quoting a psalm that is supposed to be understood the whole thing. And then other people say, no, like, just focus on what he's saying. And then the distance here and that, what does that mean? Like, 
Pete Rollins is a more progressive theologian, and he does a whole thing about atheists for Lent, and he points to that point where Jesus becomes an atheist, surrenders his faith for a moment, you know, in belief in God, and that basically deconstructs, you know, the, the systems, and we need to do that too, so that when we reconstruct them later, they're done with an honest kind of doubt and understanding of that separation. Yeah, no, I've heard of that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so it's an interesting idea, but I don't know if it fits perfectly with a great exegesis of this stuff. Uh, yeah, I've, I've actually, I've, I know people that have wanted to try that, yeah. but I don't. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't want to willfully separate myself you know yeah um, yeah well and and i i think it could also go into what's described as the dark night of the soul as well where you know that's saint john of the cross's idea of talking about these stages and what these stages actually do like there are stages of separation we know mother Teresa went through them but these are actually really advanced stages in the spiritual life where you know mother Teresa was knocked down as a young 14-year-old with the presence of God telling her to go to Calcutta, and she did that. Then when she was there and doing ministry and in community and taking Eucharist, like eventually she felt like her prayers were drying up and that she didn't have that same kind of um, tangible, expressive sort of faith that was connecting her with God that she did in her youth. But a lot of Catholic mysticism actually says that that's a, a stage of um, being with God that is the deep, one of the deepest levels of formation and discipleship and spiritual formation. So we see Jesus basically undergoing that type of spiritual formation. And it's not forever, but it is, it is a very hard time. And people go through dark nights of the soul, you know, where they feel that separation and wonder why. But I think if you look at a text like this, it does help to say Jesus did experience these things. And if you understand that, it will help you to not give up um, and to stop at that point, but to keep going, you know. Um, so don't give up if you're in the dark night of the soul. <laughs> Read that book for one. Um, okay. And then we want to touch on the arrest really quick. Sure. Just that's basically, what, that he was, was arrested. Oh, that's right. I was, uh, yeah, I was kind of assigned that, but I forgot. No, it's okay. Oh well, you know, I think there's some interesting things. You know, good old Peter here. Uh, do, do they notice? Do they name him as Peter in this one? No. Well, in the other Gospels, Peter's the one wielding the sword that right. cuts off the guy's ear. So he's just got lots of interesting things he does throughout this whole chapter. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm thankful for Peter because. You know, what hope for any of us if, <laughs> if Peter can make it out alive? Uh, but he cuts off this guy's ear, the uh, servant of the high priest. Uh, and uh, I, I once got schooled on this. I was, in, I was talking, uh, I was teaching a Martin Luther King Jr. text where he references this. Mm, mm. And I'm like, if you don't know this, this is an illusion because it says uh, there's a voice saying to every potential Peter, put up thy sword. Uh, talking about not using violence because he was, he was advocating nonviolent resistance. But I, I told the students, I'm like, if you don't know this, it's an allusion to where Peter cut off a soldier's um, 
sword. And the student was just like, it was not a soldier. It was the servant of the high priest. Dang. And I'm like, what? And then I looked. I'm like, what do you know? Uh, <laughs> That's pre- pretty good. For I, that was very students. specific knowledge, too. Whoa. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, uh, he cut off this guy's ear. But I, this is just this idea to me of... Uh, trying to take things into your own control as opposed to uh, having faith in God. Because when you think about it, God does not need defending. Uh, That doesn't mean it's not great to proclaim your faith uh, or even, uh, you know, clear up people's misunderstandings about God. But There's lots of people that are going to defend, you know, keep everybody from tearing down God. Uh, You know, God will triumph, right? Uh, So we have Peter here. You know, if you think of Peter having the faith of, like, you know, this is Jesus who, you know, he saw transfigured, who he knows has all this power. I'm going to save him with a sword, you know. If if Jesus wanted to be saved, he'd do it. So it was just some kind of message here about... Uh, trying to take these things into your own control instead of letting God handle them in life. Uh, and uh, there's a little bit of a metaphor there, I think, for it. That's all I had to say. Absolutely. About it, really. That's great. Uh, let's, I know we're yeah. running long. Uh, do you want to jump in? Your dad had Jesus before the Sanhedrin. Jesus before the Sanhedrin. We gave this to Phil Dunn because he's a trial attorney. And, you know, of course, this is Jesus' first time on trial. I liked what my dad drew out of this. He talked about the silence. Um, He talked about how um, this is basically what they call a kangaroo court, where they basically, it's a political court, and they've already made up their mind. And so they're just accusing him of false testimony um, and, and all that. So what does he say? To convict Jesus of anything, the chief priests needed solid evidence, but all he had was false test. All they had was false testimony that did not agree. Even under the rules of the kangaroo court, the chief priests could not convict Jesus with inconsistent, fabricated testimony. He needed something more. He needed a confession. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, "Are you not going to answer?" What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. He says, I submit that the right to remain silent enshrined in the Fifth Amendment of the United States Constitution was inspired by Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin. The scripture pointedly points, poignantly points out that the only way a corrupt prosecution can concede is to force a confession giving the accused the absolute right to remain silent prevents the prosecution from coercing false confessions. No person shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself. Our founding fathers had the foresight and the moral judgment, often based on their own study of scripture, to enact safeguards against political prosecutions such as the one Jesus endured. That was a great lawyerly take. Look at that. Glad that we had the lawyer handle this one. Because I sure would not have come up with that out of this, but I think I accept that submission from Big Phil. That's an interesting idea. 
to think about how the courts were set up in light of the biblical Judeo-Christian ethic and potentially came out of this. You know, another one that I learned when I was in law as a tangent is that the statute of limitations was based off of the idea of Jubilee within the Bible. What do you know? I didn't know. Yeah, so there's actually kind of a number of, it makes sense, of legal ethics that are basically come out of Scripture. So the right to remain silent, Jesus invoked it. There you go. <laughs> I got nothing to add to that. Oh, that was cool. Well, we got one last section. This is a this chapter was chock full of uh, stuff. Yes. Peter finally does disown Jesus. Did you want to add anything? I know you focused mostly on the shepherd uh, imagery. Uh, for no, when give he, me your when, give when me your was, takes. Well, you know, I preached on this two Good Fridays ago. Uh, this moment, and part of what I I talked about was. Uh, how, you know, sometimes when we read this, we go, oh, Peter, how could you? Like, it doesn't make any sense. When really, uh, we can see how human and in ways understandable his reactions are. And I kind of talked about three different ways that Peter, three different things that Peter could be feeling uh, that could kind of have motivated. Some of this was kind of you know, playing a, l a little bit about with what could psychologically be going on here. But uh, I also linked them to things that he uh, forgot to remember about what Jesus had showed him. And I, uh, I say forgot to remember because it was Good Friday. It was almost like a memorial service. So we focused on remembrance. Uh, and what Peter forgot, because Jesus had set him up to make it through this to a certain degree. Well, one thing that he could have... Uh, uh, felt was, you know, frustration. He had invested his life at this point, left everything for uh, this leader who was supposed to be the one, right? The Messiah. And he just saw him arrested and everything has come crumbling down. And so he could be frustrated, maybe with his leader, maybe with himself, but he forgot to remember that Jesus had foretold where this all goes, right? Uh, he forgot about the resurrection. So even seeing Jesus crucified or knowing about it, he forgets that the story isn't over yet. And sometimes when we're talking about the dark night of the soul, it's something, I mean, we have Peter here with his dark night of the soul. Uh, we have to remember where even all of that is heading toward, which is this ultimate destination of salvation and restoration. I talked about how Peter probably felt when he's denying Jesus uh, fear for his own immediate safety. I mean, he, uh, Jesus was arrested. They talk about, in some of the commentaries, how they think that the uh, uh, people that arrested Jesus were also after the disciples themselves. They all scattered. He also cut a guy's ear off. They cut a guy's ear off, and then they grabbed some random guy <laughs> and grabbed naked. his tunic off of him and he ran away naked. And there, I read the uh, commentaries on that and there, a lot of people have ideas about who that is. Some people think it's Mark. Yeah. Because Mark's the only one that mentions him. And it would have been I funny. I heard a sermon that was built on that all about how it was Lazarus. 
Oh, yeah, that's another and one. And I was just like, but do we have to do the whole sermon on a hypothetical? Yeah, that was, yeah. Even the commentary said, some people think this, but I don't know. Uh, but anyway, some people think it was, they were grabbing him because they wanted to grab any of the disciples. So, you know, Peter was in fear. If I say I know Jesus, I'm in there too. Uh, but he forgot that Jesus had promised him salvation, that he'd be saved from any kind of uh, you know, danger. And then finally, he could have been feeling legitimate doubt in what he had thought Jesus was doing. Uh, doubt in his own spiritual belief. Uh, you know, he thinks that Jesus is the, is the Messiah, is the Son of God, and yet he sees him so low, uh, he must have been wrong. Uh, but he forgets again that it's not over and that uh, he's been promised, and this is where they have it in the book of John, before this all happens, that Jesus says, I might be leaving, but the Holy Spirit's coming, uh, and uh, you'll be revitalized again. Uh, so I, I just, as much as Peter gets a lot of, uh, you know, uh, people really harp on him for this moment, which is, you know, really bad. Uh, we see how human it is, and we see really a reflection of ourselves, how fragile our own faith is, but then just how powerful uh, and merciful God's uh, love and forgiveness is for us, that we could even go to this point of denying him, and still Jesus forgives Peter and empowers him. So I think it's a really amazing uh, moment. Absolutely. Very, very profound. Oh, I love it. I think that's a good for today. Okay. <laughs> that's great. Okay. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for uh, this time we have in Bible study, and I pray a blessing over everyone listening, and um, I just pray that you would be with all of us, Lord, to understand in deeper ways what it means to uh, see you here, um, surrendering your will to the Father as you're headed to the cross. Um, help us to just channel that um, energy and that understanding, that insight that does deepen us and strengthen us as your disciples. In your precious and holy name we pray. Amen. See you all next week for another installment of Peter and David's Bible Chat Show. Oh, yeah.